All right, let's roll. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We left last week in our story. We've been doing this series on times and seasons and the significant, the very deep significance of understanding uh, your life and the life patterns. You've got to understand that the Bible, uh, and I was just having this conversation with one of our elders out in the foyer before, the, the Bible is full of patterns that emerge, and this is very significant for us. Over and over and over, you will see patterns. I've called them at various points templates. And the reason this is so significant is because you can place your life, irrespective of you, whether you lived 2,000 years ago or, in this case, 3,000 years ago, you can put yourself into a pattern and understand God's patterns. Let me ask you a question. Do you, don't you think, I, was, I listen to this often, a guy named Bill Nye, the science guy, and he's, he's, whether you know it or not, he's uh, entertaining and educating many, many of your children, and he's a good scientist. He's a great scientist. And uh, Degrassi's another guy, too, that was very close to Stephen Hawking, who passed away, as if you didn't know this last week. And what's happening is that they're going beyond science and they're beginning to get into what we've referred to in here before as scientism and begin to philosophize on uh, God and on e eternality of the soul, if there is a soul, consciousness, and all these different kinds of things. And over, over time, it, gets, it becomes somewhat exhausting for me because it goes beyond skepticism. I don't have a problem with skepticism. Skeptics, I mean, if you go back to the Greek, I mean, just understanding skepticism is like, well, give me some evidence. Let me understand the process. It's asking engaging questions and not being, you know, just someone who just embraces something out of the middle of nowhere uh, because we're just gullible. Skepticism is the opposite of gullibility. And I have, and we should have, like the Bereans, not unlike the Bereans in the in, in the book of Acts, I believe it's Acts chapter 17, as they said, they check these things out to make sure that they're true. So there's healthy skepticism. But much of what goes in today is cynicism. And so when we start talking about, well, you know, we have all these patterns that emerge in our life, and yeah, these bad things are actually good things for followers of Jesus, and suffering for Christ is actually something that uh, draws us closer to God and all that. I can hear the cynics now. You have to be kidding me. You guys turn everything, every, it doesn't matter what happens to you, whether you get healed or don't, whether you are in a tragic car accident, whether you lose your spouse to cancer, whether you lose your job, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, you Christians, you guys turn everything around. But these templates, these patterns in our lives help us understand that God's engaged through the entire process, whether you're looking for a piece of property whether you're looking for a job, whether you're looking for a spouse, or whether you're looking just to get healed or stay on the planet another few years. God's in the middle of it, and understanding these patterns, these Davidic patterns that you see emerge. Last week we looked at Saul, and we saw, him, we saw the juxtaposition between David and Saul. We see how Saul struggled mightily just to have faith and never really did, although, as we'll see this morning, there was a bizarre incident in which he was still filled with the Spirit, or the Spirit came upon him. I won't say he's filled with the Spirit. I would call that a New Testament born-again experience at Pentecost. But at least the Spirit came powerfully on him. He was very near. He looked like part of the tribe, but he was so duplicitous. He was in, he was out, he was in, he was out. He was so double-minded it was unimaginable. And David had his struggles, but David had a continuity of faithfulness that we see emerge in him but his pattern and his calling went hand in hand, and you will go through the same 
same thing. I'm going to have a guy with us next week for five or ten minutes. A dear friend of mine who's going to come down from Montana is a guy that I actually had the privilege to lead to the Lord, disciple for about six years, and now he's a, he's a statewide director in Montana for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'm going to talk to him about this very thing. And I was explaining to him as I was discipling him, this is a pattern you will go through. And he went through every single step because I've seen it so many times now that it never surprises me, ever. It never surprises me because this is the path we must all walk. Now, will it play itself out in exacting ways? No, but it plays it itself out in such a way that you will what? Go leave Egypt, and we talk about it all the time, go through your baptism, and then go into the wilderness for the purpose of becoming intimate with the creator of the universe but through the process you may lose everything and that's what we see with king david we're going to see this morning that king david suffered unbelievably we don't know exactly how long was it five years six years probably less than a decade based upon kind of putting all the piece of the puzzle together some kind of agree maybe seven years but for uh, an extended period of time as we've seen over the last number of weeks he was anointed king he went then what back to the sheep and then he has the experience with Goliath, and then back to the sheep, and then he's promoted, and now he's leading and commanding armies and, and having great success and has a high position. Imagine, I mean, going from nobody to having a very, very high position, one of the highest positions, is a leader and a commander of people, and now what happens? He's about to lose that as well. He's lost his respect of his family, don't know that he ever had it. We're going to see that he loses his mentor, his uh, insight guy, Samuel. He's going to lose his friend, Jonathan. He's going to lose his respect. He's going to lose just about everything. And the question would be, why? Why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? Do you hear that all the time? I mean, that's one of the top two or three, maybe the top. I don't believe in God because all of the evil in the world. I don't believe in God because, and it's a false gospel that's been preached, that everything's going to go your way when you come to Christ. As we see here, the template is you will begin to lose so that you can win. Losing is winning. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is not just, I mean, this is going from, I saved the country, you know, Saul, you could have been a servant of the Philistines, Saul, to now Saul has turned and is going to put him to death. But Jonathan, but Jonathan, let me just say, God, it, God will put you in situations where it looks unbelievably bad, but then there is a but Jonathan, or but Michael, or but, as we'll see here with David, God will interject people into your life that will become covenantial with you and help you walk through very, very difficult times, as, as was the case here. Saul's son greatly delighted in David. Now, I think one of the things that's important to understand as we see this kind of begin to be unpacked in the next chapter here, uh, this is important because the covenantial relationship we talked about two or three weeks ago is vital to your walk. Having covenantial relationships where you cut covenant with somebody, like not just like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you, you know, your friends you see every once in a while. I'm talking about deep, binding, covenantial relationships where you, you know that in some ways your life is, 
is going to have its ebbs and flows, and this is going to be a person that's not going to leave you, or when somebody else's life has an ebb and a flow to it, as it inevitably will, you will not leave them under any circumstance. Now, Jonathan had seen a number of things, and he had seen, we saw back in chapter 18, as they made this covenant, John had begun to see the Holy Spirit, I believe, clearly evidenced in David's life, and he already knew intuitively that it was going to be David who was going to supplant his own father. And in some ways, himself. Why? Because he would be the successor to his own father's kingdom by all probability. And yet now, here's the very usurper as his dad had seen him, but Jonathan doesn't see it that way. He delighted in God's appointed one. Although we don't know that he knew that David had already been anointed by God through Samuel. Very interesting thing. Jonathan says, I'm hooking my wagon to this horse and I'm doing it forever. And he delighted in him. He says, And I will go out, and I will stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and if I find out anything, then I'm going to tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David, verse 4, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it, dad, you saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed. Okay, now we have a vow from Saul. Thank you, Saul. Ready to vow. And he says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. You want to talk about duplicity. But for a moment, he's moved by his emotions, and we'll see this over and over with Saul. See, a person who's not grounded, a person who's not rooted, like Paul told the Colossians, be rooted in your faith, be rooted in the Word, is just tossed to and fro by every emotion. Now, they can be very passionate, and I've met them all. Look, you'll meet them all the time. We'll have people through the years that will come into church at the Red Door, and then they will leave church at the Red Door. Not because, uh, and they may find a reason or not. Now, look, people come in and out. Don't misunderstand. This is not a judgment on everybody who comes in and leaves out. But there are people who get caught up in the emotion of religion, and, and but it's more sentimentality that we've talked about, right? It's A lot of it's sentimentality. Some of it can be, it's there, but then they go back, and then the, the world hits them in the face, and then their moorings are not there, and they just immediately collapse under the weight and the pressure of following Jesus. It is. It's challenging, and then they just kind of disappear. I could go down after multiple decades of ministry. I could go down lists of people. Now, I'm not someone who says that we didn't, Church at the Red Door didn't quite float our boat. I know, I mean, we're somewhat of an acquired taste, right? And so, but I, and I find I'm not really comfortable with Church at the Red Door, and it's just different, and, and then so they go back to, and that's fine. There's not, there's nothing wrong with that. You're going to find a people that God's called you to, and you'll find. I'm not talking about those people who find a different church. I'm talking about people who just kind of in and out and get very excited, but then it doesn't last, and then they're gone for three months, and then their life takes a negative turn, and then they feel, oh, I need God, and they come back, or, or they go to somewhere else, or they find friends. You've got friends like this. There's just no sustainability in their walk with God. This was Saul. This is a very picture of Saul. Not so with David. David would have his ups and downs, but you see a continuity, a sustainability, a rootedness Even when he falls, and he will fall dramatically, did fall, but will fall from our storytelling here, he will fall in dramatic ways, but he always finds his way back through repentance and a heart of humility and contrition. 
And so it's just a bizarre... And, so, and then verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear again. This is the third time. I mean, can you not get more than five verses here, Saul? To go from, I vow I will never kill him, to being back. And then this, I realize there's evil spirits involved here and there's, there's some deep... There, there's, there's a psycho... Psychopath going here. This is this is a sociopath in some ways. I mean, it really is emerging in very strange ways, and then he just becomes overwhelmed with emotion. He tries to run him through with a spear again. Verse eleven says, "Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him." Again, you see this paranoia we've been talking about. We've been seeing this over and over with Saul. And then verse fifteen. Sorry, guys, up in the booth, but Saul sent messengers to see David. Bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. And here he goes again. And then Michael stands up, his daughter, Saul's daughter. Now Saul's son and daughter are both standing up for David. And, and Michael comes on, on the scene, and, and she begins to say, Dad, why are you doing this? You shouldn't do this. David, you got to get out of here. And, and he does, and he, he goes out, and he realizes, no, I've got, I've got to leave forever now. Now he loses his wife. He loses his position, and now he loses his wife. Now just think about that for a minute. I know many of us in a room this large have at various points lost a spouse through divorce or through calamity or some way, and you've lost a spouse. Some of you are struggling mightily. Some of you I know on live stream, I know I get uh, letters and things, uh, how, how deeply painful and challenging it is to lose a spouse. It's over, it can be overwhelming. And he lost his job and his spouse in just one momentary, I mean, and it's not moving from a low position to a slightly lower. It's going be, being from one of the top of the kingdom to losing everything. How would you feel? How would you respond to that? Strange, but Saul won't listen to his daughter either. And then just a bizarre side note, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but down to verse 23, and <clears throat> this is important. So it says he, pro- he proceeds then from Nioth to Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him, that's Saul, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes and he prophesied before Samuel and he lay down naked all day and all night. Therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? End of story. Just such a bizarre inclusion. You know, I vow I'll never kill him. Just a few moments later trying to run him through with a spear. And then, okay, you're right, you're right. And no, I'm going to kill him. Let's put him to death. Keep, keep a watch on him. Keep watch on him. And the next moment he goes down, and now he's in the presence of Samuel. Now he's in a, a religious context. Now he's got Samuel as his kind of a, a conscience, I guess, in some ways. He's at Ramah here. And uh, what does he do? He begins to prophesy. And God, God, I think it's God engaging Saul yet again. I mean, it reminds me of 2 Peter where it says, you know, don't count God's slowness, as, you know, because Jesus hadn't come back yet. I know a lot of people are mocking you. You guys have been believing this for 2,000 years. Peter would go ahead and say, wait a minute. Don't count God's slowness as being, you know, something negative. He goes, don't you realize he's kind and compassionate? He desires no one to perish. This is another picture of God's, in my view, faithfulness. Here he comes again, pours out the Holy Spirit on Saul. Another, yet one more opportunity. He's already been deposed. He knows he's going to lose his kingdom. But God still loves Saul. 
This is where we struggle sometimes in the New Testament because oftentimes it talks about, you know, some who have tasted the gifts of the, of the future kingdom and the Holy Spirit, and, and then they turn back again. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's like a pig returning to the mud. You know, they just can't quite get their hands around this thing, and they, they're just so emotional. They're not sustainable. They're up and down and up and down, and, you know, I'm on the wagon, I'm off the wagon, I'm on the wagon, I'm off the wagon. I even forget where the wagon is. You know, it's just that. Now, look, let me tell you something. God is long-suffering. He loves us beyond what we can imagine. But continuity is important. And God will bring pain into David's life to teach him, ultimately, to ground him in the faith. And if you don't see it that way, then you'll just see, well, this is just random. The, the, the cosmos is just so random. I, I don't know why this happens. I don't know why my property burns down. I don't know why it's just so random. You know, it's just... And but let me tell you something, that'll drive you to fear. Did you know that'll drive you to fear? If you believe, if you don't have a, a groundedness in God, that God is working out all things for your benefit, you will just believe that just things, you just, and you'll freak out, you'll be upset, you'll, you'll do what Saul did. We saw it last week. He'll, he'll rave about his house because he had no sense of the permanence or the calling of God on his life. So he was ungrounded. Now chapter 20. <clears throat> So David and Jonathan finally decide that they're going to reestablish their covenant. And it's just kind of a strange thing um, that happens here. Uh, They come together and they decide that they're going to, uh, David needs to know for sure. And so there's a big feast coming up. So Samuel's going to be, excuse me, not Samuel, Jonathan. Jonathan's going to be there with his father. And David says, okay, find out for sure. Is, is his hand against me? Because everywhere I turn, it feels like he's trying to kill me. Because he is. I mean, he's three times tried to run me through with a spear. But let's find out for sure. And Jonathan, they make this covenant. And in doing so, they kind of have a strange thing. And I guess you could read some, typologically you could read into this. I don't really read much into it other than just it was their, uh, their way of going about it. And he says, you go out into the field. And he says, you know how we go down and, and you hide in the field, David. And then I, you know how I go out and I'll shoot some arrows every once in a while and I have my servant out there. If I shoot him to a side, you'll know that it's okay to come back in. But if I shoot beyond and then I tell my servant they're beyond you, and David's hiding out in this field, then when you see that, can I just tell you, you need to run for the hills. But in doing so, and this is going to be a turn, I didn't know we were going to take this morning, but I just felt so compelled this morning that I thought we needed to stop the story because there's something too powerful in the covenant response before he agrees to do that. It's so powerful, in fact, I want you to read 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let the guys uh, get a chance to look at this. So uh, let's pick it up in verse 13, 1 Samuel 20, verse 13. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I did not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety, just as we described, and may the Lord be with you as he has been with your father. And then verse 14, and if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, let me explain what Jonathan is thinking here. Jonathan is having a a very contemplative moment, and he's looking into the future. He recognizes that this guy is anointed. There is something powerful 
that's going to happen with David. He realizes that David's throne is going to be established and his father is going to be removed. He can see it. It really gives you some insight into Jonathan being what? Like the tribe of Issachar that we talked about. Some, he like Issachar. He understood the seasons and the times. He wasn't just oblivious to what was going on around him. He knew that there was a change approaching. And it was going to affect his life. Did you know that understanding the times and the seasons, a big part of that, is you understanding that helps you begin to navigate your life to make your life better. Not just so you can be happy, but so you can also be more fruitful so that, you can, so that your descendants can be impacted, so your children's children can be impacted. And he knew exactly, Jonathan knew exactly what would happen when David came because this was the practice all over the Middle East, not just with Israel. Typically what would happen is if you'd have one administration go out and there was some kind of coup, and this still happens today, you can see it with Kim Jong-un, right? He begins to wipe out other people that would be adversaries. And typically a family that would be deposed, not only that king, but then all of his descendants would be summarily wiped out and he's saying David I realize you remember the covenant we just made I'm asking you to remember that covenant would you remember that covenant David would you do that and not and would you protect my downline would you please not wipe us off the face of the earth when you do come into your kingdom now the reason this is so significant we're going to have to jump forward in time now skip ahead in our story and pull out the beauty and the majesty of David's faithfulness, unlike Saul's, of David's lack of duplicity in an ultimate sense. And let's look all the way, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, we're going to have to give, for those of you who have never read the story of Samuel and David, or Jonathan, or, or Saul, it doesn't end well with Jonathan and his dad. And they will both end up falling on their sword in chapters to come. Both. Which is a tragedy. And by the way, when you sin, don't think it doesn't affect your children. Look, when you fail, it impacts those near you. Saul's failure. Jonathan had a beautiful heart. Jonathan was a covenant friend of David. And yet, when Saul went down, so did Jonathan. So after Jonathan's death, now we're going to have to skip forward. Second Samuel chapter 9, David obviously does take the kingdom. We have this amazing story of Mephibosheth. Oh, I love this story. Let me tell you something. If you don't think this is good, you're not listening. Wake your neighbor up. Do we need to do a seventh inning stretch here before we get? Because if you miss this, you're going to miss. This is the gospel a thousand years before the gospel. And, of course, we see that over and over in the Old Covenant, don't we? In the Tanakh. We see that from our Jewish friends in Israel. We see that. You saw that from Dr. Uh, Saref a few weeks ago, the Jewish believers. Look, this is, not one, this is one integrated whole. God had been talking about the gospel. God had been talking about us. God had been giving us patterns from the beginning of time. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm just going to read it. You just got to hear it. You got to hear this. This should embolden you. This should encourage you. But it also should humble you. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul? Why? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. You think David was remembering Jonathan? Absolutely. He was remembering what we just read. 1 Samuel 20, 14 and 15. It's exactly what he was remembering the covenant that he made. 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he says, I am your servant. And David said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Not very impressive. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of uh, Machir, the son of uh, Amiel uh, of Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the son of Amiel and the Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, now catch this, fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant, okay? And David said to him, do you not fear for I do not fear for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore you to the land of your grandfather Saul and then listen to this and you shall eat at my table regularly now think about this for a second Mephibosheth is being called to King David he knew the story he knew the culture he knew exactly he, he trust me he was being called probably to be wiped out and he falls on his face, says, here is your servant. Now, this is, this, is, this is a crippled man. I mean, this is not a vibrant dynamic. He, I mean, this is just like, this is, an easy, this is an easy person to throw out and throw away, especially in light of Saul and his ancestry. Going to eat at my table every day? And again, he prostrated himself, and he says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me. Do you hear Mephibosheth's heart? What have I got to offer? My, my grandfather was trying to have you wiped out. I'm a, I'm a descendant of nobodies, failures, people who'd turn their back on God. What's my downline? And I'm crippled. I got nothing to offer you. I can't even, I can't even fend for myself. Why, what, is it, what is it that you're going to do with me? Why would you show me this kind of compassion? Then the king calls Saul's servant. He says, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I've given to his grandson. Can you imagine this? And you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. I mean, isn't this a little overkill? I mean, really? I mean, just not killing him would be the most amazing gesture of kindness and beauty. I mean, this would go against every cultural norm there was known at that time. No, I'm going to go beyond that. Bring in the produce. Uh, and he says, you shall eat at my table regularly again. In verse 11, he says to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant to your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. And then again, now remember, he was lame in both feet. As if an added, that the author here needs to say, and oh, don't you remember? He also, God cannot even walk. I mean, this is, he has 
everything to gain and nothing to lose. He is at the bottom and yet he ate for the rest of his life. At the very table of David became part of the family. Now, can you not see the beauty of the gospel in Mephibosheth? See, you want to know how to come. Look, why do people come in and go out and come in and have moments and have... What is the difference ultimately? Because if you were to look at the religious activities of Saul, you would say he's got a lot of religious activity going for him, doesn't he? He prophesied. He, you know, he, he, was, he prostrate himself. And naked, stripped himself naked, and before the Lord for day and night. I mean, he, he did amazing. I mean, you talk about religious pedigree. Saul had it. He lacked one thing. I was talking to a dear friend of mine just last night. He said, you know, you, you have a, he, he made this comment, and, I, I, and again, I don't want this to sound like a boast, but he says, you have an amazing ability to kind of read people. That's what he said last night on our phone conversation. You, you can read people you, because he said, and again, this is not judgment. He just said, you know, be cautious there or, you know, stand back or this guy may not end up coming anymore. I know it sounds exciting. He wants to be really involved, but I don't know that he's really there yet. And, and we, he began to talk. He says, how, you know, how do you kind of have that discernment? And I said, there's one characteristic that I look for every single time. And I don't care how, where they come from, what their background is. If I sense humility, contrition, and repentance, if I sense anything, like if somebody can't give their testimony, like, hey, would you like to give your, just share, you know, how God's come into your life. And if somebody is there and it's just a long pause, like, well, I, I don't even know how to answer that. Well, I'm, I'm an elder at our church and I, no, 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 I'm not asking about what you do for God. I'm asking you, how did you get what Jesus would have called born again? How did, tell us the process of come, coming from this side, making a decision and, and then going. And you should always hear, and I, and I struggled. I was, I was a dead dog. I had lame feet. I had, I mean, whatever you're, whatever, you know, I, I had nothing. I may have seemed like I had everything. I was addicted to pornography. I was, I was, uh, I was a horrible husband. I, I, I was a terrible father. Uh, I was someone who, I, I, I had so many crutches in my life, so many things that I leaned on for my happiness, and they were all imploding around me. And, and then I recognized how far, how much, how radically different I was from the creator of the universe as I began to understand him through the text and I began to realize the holiness of God, and I recognized my utter and total depravity. Now, that can come out in different ways. But until I hear some sense of I was lost and now I'm found, then someone's just being Saul. They're around it. They've even tasted of some of our Holy Spirit experiences in here. They, they can feel it. There, there's a sentimentalism. There's something. But there's not a deep work of the Spirit that will always lead to contrition and humility. And, and the very heartbeat of Mephibosheth. Who am I? I'm a dead dog. I'm crippled in my feet. You should kill me. Why are you even calling me to you? Why are you even having a conversation? Look, unless you come to that place where you fall before God and say, why? There's no reason that I'm even in your presence. Why would you even talk to me? 
You're the creator, and from what I can detect, you're holy, and you're, which just means you're other than me. You're, you're so different than me. Why? I, Lord, I can't. And you fall until you get to that point. Then you'll be just like Luke 14. See, this is, it's this very language that God uses, that Jesus uses in Luke 14. So I want you to go to Luke chapter 14. We're way off script. The guys in the, I see them in the booth. They're completely freaking out back. No, they're not because they, they know how this rolls. But the, this is, let me tell you something. If you can get this, not only will it help you, because there's some of you in here that have had religious experiences. You've even been around and you feel like part of, you know, part of the team and all this, but you've never had a radical experience of repentance where you literally have said, God, I deserve nothing, and I fall before you, will you accept me? And you believe into Jesus, and everything's new. You receive this Holy Spirit, and now it's not like Saul. It's something very different, very different. Listen to the language. Now, this was my call to ministry. I won't go into the story, but this, this was my ultimate call to ministry. Luke 14, verse 16. You're going to understand this better now in the context of Mephibosheth. Never read Luke 14 again, ever, without giving it contextual, a contextual framework around Mephibosheth. And he said to him, Jesus told a parable. He said, a certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited a lot of people. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, well, I bought a piece of land. Uh, that, I wish that could happen with us. Anyway, and it says, and I'm just kidding. I'm just, and it says, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going I'm to go try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, well, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I'm too busy. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to the slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my table might be full. And for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, why would Jesus tell such a narrow parable? Is it truly only the blind and the literal crippled and the literal blind that ever really enter the kingdom? Is that the story that Jesus is telling? Or is it those that have an identity of being spiritually blind, crippled, and lame? And those are the ones that say, yeah, I mean, okay. And then once we become, we come to his table, we don't stay at the table. We then become then the slave of verse 17. And then he sends us out from the table and the whole process begins again. This is why I am forever an evangelical. Call me what you want. Say evangelicals are weird, fundamentalists, weirdos, and all that kind of stuff. I cannot keep it to myself. The master says, slave, 
Go back out into the streets and the lanes. And when they make excuses, go out, go out. And then finally, and even if, if they're still making excuses, go out into the highways. If you have to hit the road, you know, out into the thorns and where the curse is. See, out in the highways and along the hedges, the hedges usually have thorns. You know, it's not the highway. It's not the proverbial highway that leads, you know, Isaiah 35, that leads to the presence of God. People are caught out in the thicket, and they can't move, and they can't see. Hosea 2, they're all hedged in. They don't know how to, they don't know how to move around. Slave, go out there and tell them that I'm inv- I've got a dinner plan for them. And they're going to eat at my table regularly forever. There's the invitation. But only the Mephibosheths say yes. Because only the Mephibosheths see that they are, in fact, dogs relative to the Creator. Without the Spirit, Peter says, we're like creatures of instinct, you know, captured and snared by the sin around us. We're not, even though we've been created Imago Dei in the very image of God, we act like animals. People say that all the time. I don't believe in God because people act like animals. Why is that God's fault in an ultimate sense? If he's given us the, the free will to make decisions and we choose to negate his path for us and walk into his kingdom, what will happen as a result of that? We'll act like animals. Of course we will. We'll be instinctive. We'll be emotional like Saul. We'll, we'll go on this roller coaster back and forth. And one moment we'll be on and the next moment we'll be off. But you have to start. See, what's, what never happened with Saul, we never get a picture of it with Saul. Did he feel a deep contrition and humility? He had moments of feeling bad. He did. But he never had the kind of depth of contrition. He could have never written Psalm 51, which is what David wrote about himself. Look, you know, the thing that, and I will say terrifies me. Uh, it, it, It drives me. And you'll hear me say this many times over the coming years. If the Lord so has it that I get to be here for an extended period of time. The letter to James said, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Don't, don't everybody want to teach this word? Because let me tell you something. If you're teaching this, and you may be doing your best, but if you're not giving the base element of the Mephibosheth story in one type or another... And telling people that they must repent and they must see themselves in that place, then they'll have a religious experience, but they'll never have a born-again experience. And there is a radical difference in the two. You know, if you go back in Scripture, again, if you go back in Scripture, you're going to see that very much the Gentiles, prior to the Holy Spirit being poured out, were often referred to as beasts of the field. I know that may be offensive to my non-Jewish friends in here this morning. But then I, I wasn't offended by that. Do you remember the story that Jesus has? And, and, and the woman comes, and she's a Syrophoenician woman, and she says, Lord, you know, Lord, help, I've got a problem here. And she's so desperate to have her daughter healed. And, and he, says, he says, why would the master throw these children's bread to the dogs? Remember the language. See, what Jesus was trying to get her to do was admit she was a dog. And she did. 
as a Gentile. He said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed from the bread crumbs that fall from the master's table. How do you see yourself? See, this is the weird tension that we live in. I'm a dog, but I'm an adopted child of the living God. I live in a a flesh that will never be ultimately sanctified. It will always be drawn towards the seen realm and away from the unseen realm. But now, if you just can enter in and say, Lord, I am am Mephibosheth, then your journey with God can begin at that moment. But until you hit the bottom, until you hit a place that you recognize that you are in total You have nothing to offer God, nothing to offer God. You're lame and blind and crippled. The gospel will never make sense to you. Not the true gospel. It'll never make sense to you. Religion might make sense, but religion makes sense to billions of people all over the planet. But true repentance, being Mephibosheth, seeing yourself there, that's the beginning of the road. And it's a most glorious road. And let me tell you something, as you walk this road, every mile matters. The beginning mile matters to get it right. Make sure it's not a religious sentimentality that you have because your great-grandmother used to go to church. It's got to be an individualized, personal encounter with the risen Lord. Every mile, and that first mile matters, and as we'll continue next week, So do the successive miles of breakdown and loss matter in your ultimate ability to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. So let's close with this last worship song. I want you to to listen intently to the words of this song. Every mile matters in your journey with God.